Welcome to the new podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I'm Isabel Moreno Hay, Clinic Director of the Orofacial Pain Center at the University of Kentucky. The American Academy of Orofacial Pain, also known as AAOP, is an organization of dentists and health providers dedicated to alleviating pain and suffering of patients through the promotion of excellence in education, research, and patient care in the field of orofacial pain and any other associated disorders. If you would like to learn more about the AAOP and its mission, please visit our website at www.aaop.org. Before we get started, I would like to thank Dr. Steven Scrivani, Chair of the Continuing Education Oversight Committee of the AOP, for his support and guidance on this new project of educational podcast in which we will be talking to renowned experts in the field of orofacial pain and temporomandibular disorders. In today's podcast, we're going to be discussing with Dr. Stephen Bender the role that dentists can play in the management of sleep disorders, and particularly, we will be asking him about the management of obstructive sleep apnea. Dr. Stephen Bender is currently the director of the Center for Facial Pain and Sleep Medicine and clinical assistant professor at the College of Dentistry of Texas A&M University in Dallas. He has been dedicated to the field of orofacial pain and sleep for 20 years, and among many other appointments, he is past president of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. Dr. Bender has authored multiple publications, lectured nationally to different organizations and academies on on topics related to orofacial pain and sleep. He has also served as a consultant for the United States Army. He's an excellent educator and communicator. So I hope you will enjoy this interview with Dr. Stephen Bender. Welcome, Dr. Bender. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I would like to start by asking if you could explain to us what does the term of dental sleep medicine refer to? And in your opinion, is this a new emerging field in dentistry? Well, I'll I'll start with the term itself. I Dental sleep medicine, in my opinion, refers to the field of dentistry involved in mostly uh, treating people with sleep disorder breathing with oral appliances. Now I'll take a step back and tell you my opinion. My opinion is that that term is not really a good term, and I really wish that it would go away because I think it limits what we as dentists can do as far as helping to uh, establish airway and other manage other sleep disorders uh, in concert with our physician colleagues. So what, what is a good term? I don't know. Uh, recently, I have seen some publications of other people that agree that it, the, I, they think the time has come for that term to go away, but I haven't seen a good um, replacement. I just think that it limits, and, and I think physicians agree that the term limits dentistry to maybe just being lab techs of making oral devices. Getting to the um, second part of the question where... Uh, yeah, is this like an emerging field? So, yeah, I would say that it, it in the last, oh, what I've seen in the last five to ten years, it has been a growing field, maybe even an emerging field in dentistry. Um, we can, however, I mean, those of us that have been involved in orofacial pain for quite a while can even look back into our training. We were 
discussing sleep and sleep disorders as it related to pain early on, even before we became, you know, heavily involved in in actually fabricating these devices or helping diagnose or, or helping screen our patients. Um, I know that uh, early in my oral facial pain practice, a big part of what I did was screen for sleep disorders. Um, my treatment at that time was medicating people the best I could to try to help them sleep to manage their pain. You know, obviously we know that pain, that sleep has a significant impact on uh, pain and the response to our therapy. So that probably started, well, I started in this field probably around 20 years ago. Um, we can look at historically uh, back in the 20s, I think is the first report of a oral appliance being used for somebody with sleep disorder breathing. I believe it was Pierre Robin that uh, used a device that brought the lower jaw forward. Um, and then we look at publications of efficacy of oral appliances. I think the first one was in the mid-90s um, by a, a group. And um, even looking at sleep and oral facial pain in general, um, I think the first article I found was back in the early 70s. So is it a new and emerging field? I think yes for the, you know, for the uh, general dentist. But I think um, as far as has a dentist been involved in sleep, um, yeah, I think it goes, it goes back quite a ways. Mm-hmm. So what are exactly sleep-related breathing disorders well, sleep-related breathing disorders, again, I, I'm not real fond of this term, but I won't get into that. Mm-hmm. I'll save you that. Okay. Um, sleep-related breathing disorders are going to be either uh, pauses or cessation in breathing or just a, a change or a dequ- decrease in the quantity of air that we breathe in. So, you know, I like to say to people that I'm teaching, it's bottom line, it's less or no air during periods of uh, sleep. And... Which are the risk factors for the development of obstructive sleep apnea that we need to be aware of as dentists? So I think that, um, you know, specialist dentists and general dentists in general should be, um, uh, in total, should be looking for these disorders. And it, it can start with just your basic assessment. I mean, you look at the age of a patient, a patient over the age of 50, let's say, is going to be more prone to have sleep disorder breathing than somebody younger. Uh, gender, uh, males definitely more than females. I think before menopause, it's like a four to one ratio. Um, if we look at a neck size of an individual, if the neck size is greater than 17 inches in a male or 16 inches in a female, they're more prone to have sleep disorder breathing. Um, if they have small jaws, especially the lower jaw, that's going to predispose them to a smaller airway and sleep disorder breathing. If they sleep on their back, that's another risk factor, uh, as well as obesity. Uh, obesity has, I think, been found to be related um, maybe even up into the 90% of people with sleep disorder breathing. So these, these are some general things that a person just can quickly assess as risk factors. Then you look at other health, um, not necessarily risk factors, but comorbidities like um, hypertension and uh, you know, other fact, other cardiovascular factors can be associated. So, what can we do when, if we suspect that a patient can have obstructive sleep apnea? Well, I think the dentist is in a in a great position to screen these patients. Number one, because we see our patients generally more 
then the patient will see their physician or their other healthcare providers. So that puts us in an optimum position to to do more than just our normal dental screening. So um, what we can do as far as um, identifying these patients, um, we can incorporate questionnaires into our, our forms that will maybe just ask about sleepiness or tiredness or snoring, um, uh, you know, other things that might be associated with poor sleep. If we look at our, in the field of oral facial pain, if we look at our patients with pain, by and large, I would say that most of them probably have some kind of sleep disorder breathing, Be- again, because we know of the uh, effect of poor sleep on pain. Mm-hmm. Some studies have said that uh, poor sleep will precede new pain onsets a majority of the time rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. So as our role as dentist, I think that we can take kind of a lead role in just uh being the screener, in other words, identifying these patients through questionnaires, through our physical exam, and then possibly using uh, some home sleep testing devices or screening devices um, to help uh, identify these patients and then get them to for a proper referral. And that's exactly my next question was, what type of uh, screening device would you recommend then? What type of devices do you use? And, and, and what are the differences between the lab sleep study or the home sleep study? So that, you know, that's a great question that I think will, um, yeah, I'll tell you, obviously tell you my biases, but I think it will depend on, on the practitioner's comfort level of using these devices as well as, you know, just how how thoroughly they want to screen, how much money they want to spend, too. So in my practice, I've used for a long period of time, I use the questionnaires, the Epworth and the Stop Bank, um, but I also use pulse oximetry, which is basically two channels. We're checking for pulse about every two to three seconds during sleep, and we're looking at oxygen saturation um, during at the same time. So with that information, I can get a really good idea, as simple as it is, from usually just one night of sleep. Does this person have the propensity or potential of having sleep disorder breathing? Now, it's not diagnostic by any means, but it uh, studies have shown that pulse oximetry does correlate with the in-lab overnight sleep studies that we'll talk about in just a minute um, pretty well. In other words, if we see drops in oxygen averaged out over the time that it's the device has been worn, um, then it will correlate more than likely to what it might be found in a more formal sleep study. So I look at that. I, I look not just at the oxygen saturation. I look for heart rate activity. If there's a whole lot of heart rate up and down activity going on during certain periods of sleep, I know that that's not just a bad dream or somebody getting up or their dog wakes them up. If it lasts for a period of time, that's a stress response. And if we're not breathing while we're sleeping, that's going to produce a stress response. So we can get a lot of good information. Now, there's more sophisticated take-home devices, too. In fact, there are devices that are almost as sophisticated as an in-lab sleep study. Now, what is an in-lab sleep study? Well, that's a lot of different measures. Um, I think the key difference between in-lab sleep study and home sleep test, though, is going to be an in-lab sleep study is going to tell us if the person is asleep 
and what sleep stage they're in. And they do that by measuring brainwave activity and muscle activity. Most home devices don't have that capability. So the, the recording will be the whole time that the person is wearing the take-home device. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a sleep lab, they will record only the time asleep. So your numbers are a little bit more precise. But again, as I said, the, the data tells us that they're very similar. So we can have a lot of confidence using these home screening devices. So you mentioned that you use uh, these home screening devices in order to identify which patients might have some dis- uh, sleep disruption. Uh, do you also use them uh, to monitor the success of your treatment, or, or do you limit it just for the screening portion? Um, no, in my practice, I use it for both. I will screen my patients uh, to determine if and what kind of referral is, is needed because, again, we want, we want a diagnosis that a physician can give us. Um, now, once we initiate treatment, then I do like to have a baseline um, study before, uh, before we start, and then we will periodically do our pulse oximetry to measure our quote-unquote success. In other words, are we getting these breathing episodes, um, these in, uh, hampered breathing episodes, are we treating those? And we can easily identify that with our take-home devices. Now, what I try to do is not focus strictly on the take-home device because, again, the numbers aren't as precise as a in-lab sleep study. Um, but also, we know that those numbers don't necessarily correlate as well as we thought they did to um, optimum sleep. So I will just ask the patient, how are you feeling? You know, are you snoring? Are you feeling more rested when you wake up? Uh, if you have hypertension, what is what is that doing? Um, all these other comorbid health issues. Do you you know? Are you still having headaches? Are you still having jaw pain? So for me, it's a lot more than just the numbers. But yes, we use these devices to to kind of track um, how we're doing with our devices. Mm-hmm. And speaking of devices, uh, when is oral appliance therapy? recommended for the management of these disorders? Well, if you, and again, I have opinions that may differ from guidelines. If you look at guidelines, the, the first choice should be positive airway pressure or CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. So that is a, a if people are out there not familiar, that's a, a machine-type device that blows positive pressure into the airway to keep it inflated so we can breathe. The problem, yes, they are successful. The problem with these devices is the compliance. In other words, are people actually wearing them is pretty low. And so a device that's not worn, a a CPAP device or positive airway pressure that's not worn or only worn a part of the night is not really therapeutic if you think about it. So getting back to your question, the guidelines would tell us that an oral appliance is indicated in mild to moderate sleep apnea, uh, in patients that cannot tolerate a CPAP or refuse to wear a CPAP or the CPAP is contraindicated for whatever reason. So the bottom line is it's usually not first-line therapy unless it's a snoring mild to moderate case. But in my opinion, the best treatment is the treatment that people are going to actually use. And so I might say that in some individuals, even severe sleep apneic individuals, an oral appliance might be our first choice. 
and then we can augment that with other therapies if needed, need be. Mm-hmm. And could you clarify for us or explain a little bit further what type of oral appliances uh, are indicated? Well, an oral appliance for sleep disorder breathing is going to differ than our other types of mouth guards usually. In other words, this type of device is, is used to hold the jaw or the tongue and or the tongue in a forward posture. If you think about CPR, in other words, with CPR, we try to increase the size of the airway by tilting the head and thrusting the mandible. Well, these oral devices for sleep apnea do that for us. They will, by different mechanisms, hold the lower jaw in a forward position enough to mechanically keep the airway open. The CPAP, if you remember, uses positive airway pressure. The oral devices have um, do more of a mechanical opening. They will stiffen the uh, muscles of the upper airway to some degree, at least we suspect they do, and they will also cause the tongue to come forward. There are also devices only used for bringing the tongue forward called tongue-retaining devices that are like little suction balls that uh, will adhere or attach to the tongue, and by biting on this uh, device, you can keep the tongue forward. This is, again, another device that the compliance is not real high but can be useful in people that, let's say, don't have teeth. Mm-hmm. So... Once that we have started treating a patient, uh, would you recommend uh, to refer the patient back to the sleep physician at a certain point to really uh, verify the effectiveness of the oral appliance? What protocol do you use? Well, the, the, um, I've been really blessed with being able to work with a one particular sleep physician for a number of years. And so we have a great working protocol, uh, working relationship and protocol. And that's that's what I would recommend to provider to other dentists is try to find uh, you don't need to work with everybody because you're not going to get along and agree with everybody that um, every sleep physician. So um, through that arrangement that we have, we under we understand each other what we're doing and we um, we work in agreement. So my protocol would be if when the sleep physician after I screen the patient and refer to the sleep physician for the diagnostic workup and they recommend an oral appliance, then I'm going to fabricate that, titrate it. In other words, do the adjustments. We will periodically monitor with the pulse oximetry. And once we reach a position where I feel like the patient is well treated, if the sleep physician said, please return, you know, have the patient return for follow-up, then that's what we will do. Now, there are some cases that we might, um, he might not want that, and he will either say that at the onset in his referral letter that he does not need to see the patient again for routine follow-up or whatever, or I will send the documentation to him indicating where we are, and he will either elect to see the patient or not. So I leave that, uh, I try to leave that in the realm of what the sleep physician wants as far as follow-up. But I think it is important, uh, bottom line, to remain in really good communication with your sleep physician or primary care physician, whoever it might be, just as we do in other aspects of oral facial pain when we're working with our um, medical colleagues. Um, and we do this with our dental colleagues as well. It's, it's important that we all communicate with each other. Uh, sure it is. 
Uh, and finally, I have a last question that I always like to ask our guest speakers in this podcast. How do you envision the development of this field um, in the future of dentistry? You know, that's a, that's a great question, and, and probably my view has changed a lot over the years since I've been involved in this aspect. As I said, when I first started in, in oral facial pain, our task, our, our, I felt like our goal was to help our sleep patients sleep better, and usually that meant medication or cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever it was. Now, there were dentists doing this kind of care, but I didn't see it as part of routine by by this type of care, I mean oral appliances for sleep disorder breathing. At that point, I did not see it as a routine part of a, an oral facial pain practice or even a general practice. Now, though, with with what we know about how our patients respond to um, to dentists being involved in more health screening, like diabetes and and other health screenings, our patients want this. They are totally in support of expanding the role of dentistry to include screening, vaccinations, and other things that are more traditionally um, thought of in the physician's realm. So our patients come see us more. Our patients are eager for us to be involved in their total health, not just their oral health. So I see the role of the dentist being involved in sleep medicine expanding now, how far it'll expand, I don't know. I know in our institution, we are, as in other places I've heard of, we are teaching our undergraduate students about sleep, not just oral appliances. So we're helping them learn and understand the importance of sleep, sleep disorders, and how that may fit into their dental practice. In our graduate programs, we go a little bit deeper. So if you compare what we teach in our dental school compared to what they teach in medical schools, there's probably um, a third of medical schools that actually provide um, training in sleep at all. Mm -hmm. And they probably get about, I think the latest data is two and a half hours. So I think that dentists may be even better trained to kind of fill the role of, uh, of being a sleep expert uh, in conjunction with our medical colleagues, if that's what they choose as a, a field or an area of dentistry. So bottom line is I see it growing. I see it expanding. Where it will go, I don't know. Um, I do think that, though, um, as dentists, we shouldn't um, try to think that we could do this on our own. I think we should definitely work with our medical colleagues. But I see that relationship becoming more collegial as opposed to us just being a lab tech. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. This has been very, very interesting. And thank you for taking your time to participate in this podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was certainly a pleasure. If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.aalp.org. It was my pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for listening.